There's a lot of mysteries in the Christian life. One of the more astounding mysteries that I've encountered within the intersection probably of uh, faith and life is how many parents, including myself, who decided that decorating their new baby's nursery with what was possibly one of the most horrific scenes in human history of near mass extinction seems like a good idea. I mean, when you read through the, the, the chapters between Genesis 6 and 9, and, and you don't read it through the eyes of familiarity that many of us read this story with, the death and the carnage is overwhelming. It's mind-boggling, Right? All of humanity, apart from those that you could count on two hands, wiped out in the space of about, well, the flood lasted, the the, the rain lasted probably nearly six weeks. Um, The flood waters for months and months. But all of humanity... Every single thing that God says had the breath of air in its nostrils destroyed. It's probably the most catastrophic physical event in human history, right? It completely reshaped the surface of the earth. It brought death on a scale that has not been since seen. And you know what we've done with it? Made cute stencils. (laughs) And stuck them to the wall above our children's cribs. Or made those little things that spin around to amuse them. Or made pretty picture books. Now, I'm not here to rant and rave about those things. That's fine. If you want to put Noah's Ark on your wall, go for it. It's all right. But let's let's point our children to the things that when we see those sanitized versions of this story, and they're the story, that's the story that so many of us are familiar with, a sanitized version of Noah's story. We underestimate a lot of things about it. We underestimate a significant event like God eventually said humans will never see something like that again so let me from the outset make a few statements about this passage to ensure that even if you disagree with me by the time we get to the end of this sermon at least you'll know where I'm coming from okay so just a few disclaiming statements right from the outset First and foremost, most importantly, is this. The 2014 film Noah, starring Russell Crowe, is close to being one of the worst films ever made. All right? It attempted to depict a biblical event and screwed it up so badly. If you've never watched it, don't. If you have, I'm very sorry. If you have and enjoyed it, I'm available for counselling on Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Fridays. All right? It's terrible. Second one. I 100% believe 
that Evan Almighty was wrong. (laughs) That the flood spoken about in Genesis wasn't a local flood. It was a worldwide historical event. I 100% believe that and hold to it. Number three, for those of you who have been reading this ahead and in your Bible studies, I have absolutely no idea who the Nephilim were. Don't come and ask me about it. (laughs) Don't. No, you are welcome to. And you know what I'll say? I have no idea who the Nephilim were. Genesis 6, 1 through 8 is a really... It's an intriguing passage. Um, Michelle dropped in not to ask me about that. She didn't make a special trip about that, but she weaved it into the conversation. Um, we were chatting about it with, for a while, weren't we? And it's, it, one of the things that intrigues us about that passage is the unknowns. And it, that's true of lots of the things in the Bible. When the Bible doesn't give us all the details that we'd like, and it sort of stirs our curiosity, and there are things about, oh, who are the sons of God and the daughters of men, and what were they doing, and what were their babies like? And it's, it's intriguing. And there's a lot of opinions about it. I've got an opinion about it. I'm happy to share that with you. Not now, because it's just an opinion, but... Come and chat with me about it if you like. But when Genesis 6 and 4 says, the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, we can have opinions about that, but they're very much opinions because apart from a very uh, sort of just a couple of vague references throughout the scripture, we've got very little else to go on than our own opinions and the way that we logically think about it. My point is this, out of that, hold fiercely to what the Bible is clear about and hold gently what the Bible isn't clear about. So they're the three disclaimers. Russell Crowe's Noah, like most of Russell Crowe's movies, is garbage. Um, Evan Almighty was wrong. And um, I don't know who the Nephilim are. I think what we can clearly see from this passage, apart from the debate, there's a lot of debates been over the years about, well, was it really a worldwide flood? Does it really go over the mountains? Did it really do this? Did God... That sounds an awful lot like the earlier parts of Genesis where the snake turns up and says, did God really say that? But there's a lot of debates about this passage. Where did all the water really come from? Is it possible that all the people of this world could actually trace their ancestry back to Noah and his wife? I think there are three things that, that I want to at least bring out of this story. Over, this is going to be a bit of a sweeping story across Noah. We would need quite a few weeks to go through it detail by detail. We, we tend to just think it rained, there was an ark, you know, pairs of animals, which is actually not accurate either. There are more than pairs of animals that go into it. But Noah, three sons, his wife, their wives, some animals. They all got cosy for a few months. Somewhere in there was a dove, a fig, Ararat. The end, okay? But, but to see when you read it and, and sort of just go through it bit by bit, there's a lot going on. It would take us weeks to deal with it all thoroughly. But I've just got three things that I want to point out as a bit of an overview of this story that I think and I hope will be helpful, particularly helpful in what I believe the Old Testament is there to do, which is draw our hearts and our attention to Christ. All right? It's not just to fill us with historical knowledge so that we know a lot about Noah. It's actually to fill our hearts with a vision of who Jesus is and the joy of the gospel. 
That's how Jesus interpreted the Old Testament. That's how we ought to as well. So what are the three things that I think will draw our hearts to Christ out of this story? First is this. We really underestimate the seriousness of sin. This, this story of Noah found from Genesis 6 through Genesis you know, onwards 9 into chapter 10 a bit. But One of the things that as I was reading through it and thinking about it and thinking some of the questions that I've heard from people about this, some of the discussions and the debates that go on about this story is we really underestimate the seriousness of sin. So just, I'm going to travel through and give you the references and just keep up with me if you like. Genesis 6 verses 5 and 7. I'm just going to try and pluck a few of these um, verses out and just highlight as we go through some of the things that are described in this story. Genesis 6, 5 and 7 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. That in itself, that sentence in itself is mind-boggling. That God regretted making man. And that he was grieved to his heart as he saw us. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verses 11 and 13 of the same chapter says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their ways on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Genesis 6.17 For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Chapter 7, verse 20. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's about 7 meters. 7 meters above the highest mountains on earth, the water covered. All flesh died. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock... Beasts or swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, birds of heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. We underestimate the seriousness of sin. 
I mean, this is a catastrophic event, right? And it is, it is sparked and fueled by God looking at the earth and seeing sin and corruption. And he says, I, I need to destroy it. There isn't a way forward. We underestimate just how serious God takes sin. It's not just this story. It's not like this is just some sort of extreme example. You find that all the way through the Bible. So in James, back in the New Testament, James chapter 1 says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it conceived, give birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth what? Death. Or Matthew 18, this is quite a, a challenging teaching that, J, that Jesus gave. And even in Jesus' time, those that were walking with him and listening to his, his teaching, uh, following his teaching, they got to this part where Jesus said this, and a lot of them just went, yeah, that's, that's a bit weird. We can't do that. And, and lots of people left Jesus when he said these words in Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Or if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We underestimate the seriousness of sin. Jesus wasn't advocating self-harm. He wasn't saying to people, amputate your hands and pull your eyes out, literally. He was trying to help us understand how seriously do you take sin. Serious enough to realize that when sin is a problem in life, you need to do something drastic to cut it away. What about Romans 5, 12 and 14? Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who would come. Death reigned, he said. Or in the same book, Paul said in Romans 6.23, and these ones you might know, for the wages of sin are what? Death. The wages of sin are death. We underestimate the seriousness of sin. And one of the things that the story of Noah does is it confronts us dramatically. I mean, we have to, if we read this story, be honest, we're left with questions like, my goodness, really, God? You looked over all the earth. And you thought that the best way to handle this was complete destruction. Have you had questions like that? I, I have. Really, God? That's how you deal with sin? And it confronts us with the story about the fact of how much I easily underestimate sin. Firstly, in my own life, I know that. I'm a little bit quicker to point it out and realize how serious it is in your life. But my life, well, I can, you know, 
I can manage that. That's those, um, what were those books? I, I grew up reading these little books about a missionary doctor in Africa. Do you remember those books? Who, who read those books? Not Jungle Book. No, 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 no. What are they called? Who was the guy that wrote those? Paul White. Yeah, right? I can remember one of them um, about a little kid who finds a kitten of a leopard. Do you remember that story? And he brings home this little leopard and he feeds it mints and he feeds it little things. And, and there was an older man in the village and he kept on saying to him, listen, little leopards become big leopards and big leopards kill. And the point of the little parable was that little sins become big sins and big sins kill. But so often in my life, I've entertained the little kittens, the little leopards in my life, right? Where I just sort of entertain. I think they're under control. I think that I can manage them. I think that I'll be able to handle it. And we drastically underestimate sin. And Noah's story tells us how should we think about, how should this affect in our, our lifestyle, how should it affect our thinking, how should it affect our decisions if sin is serious? First thing it should do is this. It should produce a holy fear. When we read through the story of Noah and we deal honestly with what we see in these pages, it should produce a holy fear in us. That if I am apart from Christ, our sin is no small matter. It's not just some passing inconvenience in our life. Sin kills every time. Every time. Sin tears down. Sin destroys. It destroys our emotional life. It destroys our relational life. It destroys our marriages, our, our jobs and our Social, we think that it's something to be played with and enjoyed for a moment. And that's the, the enticement of Satan, right? And I underestimate just what I'm playing with. Just what I'm dealing with. So this story, it should confront us with the reality and the seriousness of sin. And it should produce a holy fear within me that apart from Christ... I'm, I'm a dead man. Second thing it should do, it should make those of us who know and love Jesus all the more convinced to put to death the very thing that desires to kill us. In Romans 8 and 13, Paul says it like this, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Paul, in his trademark blunt attitude, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you live. Right? Or Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. There's a great, um, a great man of God by the name of John Owen lived within the Puritan era, former years. He said it like this quite famously. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Get about killing sin or sin will be killing you. We underestimate the seriousness of sin. 
The second thing we underestimate by this story as we read through it is we underestimate, I think, the, the exclusivity of salvation. Just how narrow salvation is. We underestimate the exclusivity of salvation. I think maybe in this era, and, and maybe lots of people have said this over the generations, but I tend to think that we are inhabiting one of the most pluralistic, inclusive, and tolerant generations that have ever existed, even if they want to define the word tolerant in a very strange way. We inhabit one of the most pluralistic and inclusive and tolerant generations that maybe Australia at least and maybe the world has ever seen and it is destroying us, whether you're a Christian or not. The notion that there could only be one way of knowing God, that there is only one way of salvation, is not only absurd to our current generation, but is now seen as as dangerous and deeply offensive. The faith claims of Christianity once seemed to be options. They were just seen as options that it could coexist with secularism. You do you, I'll do me, it's all good. That's what it was like, even when I was a young boy, right? Even when I was going through high school 20, nearly 30 years ago. It was... Yeah, look, it was uncomfortable to be a Christian, to stand up and claim your faith, but really, it was sort of just like, oh, that's okay for you. You do you, I'll do me. You know, Christianity and secularism, they could sort of coexist as long as we didn't push too hard on anybody. Not anymore. It's not just about coexisting anymore. Now the, the truth claims of Christianity are labelled as hate speech. And they're viciously attacked, not only socially, but now also by law. It's one thing to recognise this in the world. It's quite another thing to recognise that it can be happening in our own churches. Because we are in the world, but please remember, we're not of the world. What defines the, the world's identity shouldn't define our identity. And so when Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, and God has seen the wickedness of the world, he's made the declaration, Noah, I will save you and your family. I'm going to wipe out the rest of the world. He says this, chapter 6, verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. Make an ark. Chapter 6, verse 17 says, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. Remember, we've read these. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And all and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. That shall be male and female. Later on, he gives details about certain other types of animals to bring more pairs of those in. Chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Then in verse 4 it says, For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days, forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the earth. Noah, go into the ark. 
verse 11, same chapter, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons who were with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, all the livestock according to its kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the crown, on the earth, according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah. Two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut them in. Verse 23, chapter 7. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him, where? In the ark. It is painfully clear from the account of Noah, salvation was where? In the ark. Right? You were either in the ark and lived, or you were outside the ark and you died. There wasn't another way. There weren't other rafts. There weren't other mountains that were going to be high enough for you to climb. Trees tall enough for you to sit upon. You were either in the ark and lived, or you were outside of the ark and you died. That's the exclusive claims of salvation found in the book of Noah. The story of Noah. But that's not the only place they're found, right? Jesus said, John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except where? Through me, right? If you had known me, he says, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. And he was talking about looking at Jesus, right? The exclusive claims of salvation found in Noah's story are signposts. They're they're forecasts to say this is how God saves. Acts 4, 12. There is salvation in No one else, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I could see you reciting that one, Jacob. Good job. It's a teen mission verse. For those of you who had lunch here last week, or those of you who didn't actually, you missed out on something. Our young ones sat there and just made me proud and put me to shame at the same time. Luke chapter 12, verses 8 and 9. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. That's exclusive. And we live in a world that says inclusive, tolerate. There's lots of ways. Who are you to say that there's one way? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. There's no one and there's no other way. Salvation can't be found anywhere else. We underestimate the exclusive claims of salvation. 
I'm not sure that I can put it any better than the great C.S. Lewis, who famously put the challenge to us by saying this, and to follow his logic. C.S. Lewis once said this, A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I love C.S. Lewis's way of saying things. Or else, he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. Jesus is either Lord of all or not at all. He is either the way of salvation or not. We underestimate the exclusive claims of salvation as we are confronted with it, even as we read the story of Noah. Third thing, we underestimate the expansiveness of God's grace. And you're sort of thinking, man, I read through this story, Chris. I don't see a lot of that. There just seems to be death and there just seems to be destruction. There, there seems to be condemnation. There seems to be judgment everywhere. But boy, read through this story. One of the things it does is show us how much we underestimate the expansiveness of God's grace. God would have been justified in his decision to destroy his creation utterly, right? He looked at the whole world... Everywhere was destruction and corruption and death. And he said, I'm sorry that I ever made it. He would have been completely justified in his decision to wipe out humanity in its absolute wholeness. To begin again from scratch. I mean, only generations earlier, it was God who said, let there be light and light just sprung. Let trees be formed. Let animals walk. Let man be created. He could have done all of that. He could have wiped it all out and just said, I'm going to start again. That was, that was atrocious. But he didn't. God's grace was evident even in this story of sin and judgment. So at the beginning of that story, we read it earlier, it says the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, right? That every intention of his thoughts were evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to blot them out. Everything. Then you read, but Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah lived with God. And Noah had three sons. Note very carefully what it doesn't say about the sons. It doesn't say they were righteous. And so that they walked upright before the Lord. 
We know that Noah wasn't a perfect man either, right? In chapter 8, as the boat, the ark, is floating on the floodwaters of the earth and had been there for months, chapter 8 verse 1 says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were made with him in the ark and God made a wind blow of the earth and the water subsided. Chapter 8, verse 18, into chapter 9, says Noah went out of the ark, right? Sons, wives, daughters with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth. They went out families by families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal, there's extra ones, and some of the every clean bird. And he, he offered burnt offerings. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said to his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's grace was poured out even as he gave that sign of the rainbow that has been snatched away and stolen away and meant to try and depict everything else apart from what God intended it to depict. God was giving us a sign of hope to say, you can trust me. And God came down and made a covenant with Noah, a promise, a binding promise. God's grace is on display in this story. It stands, I know, in sharp contrast to judgment and destruction and his wrath against sin. And we know that Noah, even though he was described as a righteous man, he wasn't. I mean, did you get to chapter 9? It's incredible, right? Noah is just seeing the salvation of God, comes out, builds an altar prays one of the most profoundly theological prayers and then gets absolutely hammered on wine. I mean, he got literally stark naked hammered. He was so drunk he didn't know whether he was taking his clothes off or not. Ended up lying in his tent, bare naked. I mean, that was a great worship service, but I'm not sure that's the right way to celebrate that. Noah might have been a righteous man, but he wasn't a perfect man. The point of the story isn't that God looks after good people. The point of the story that that God doesn't sort of look out for people who deserve being rescued, and he rescues them. The point is that God will always keep his word. That's the point of this story. The point of the story is that it is always God who saves. That it is God who will act according to his character. Despite what we're like. I want you just to focus again. I know we're running out of time. But I want you to go back and just focus on one little verse in the passage that we just read. So you'll find it as you go back. Genesis 8 verse 20. I want you just to notice something. I'll point it out quickly. So Noah's got off the boat with his family, and it's Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. 
And this is the part I want you to notice. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aromas, this is what the Lord said in his heart, okay? This is, I want you to really focus on the logic that, that God uses here. So he makes a promise. I will never again curse the ground because of man. That's the promise that God makes, right? Can you see it? But then, immediately following, is the reason for God's decision. And it should surprise you. It surprises me. I will never again curse the ground because of men. Now, here's the way I would... If it was me making this promise, this is the way I probably would have handled it, and probably you would have too. I will never again curse the ground because of men, because they've learned their lesson. I will never again curse the ground because of man... Because I pushed them so hard that first time, I'm sure they'll never do this again. Not what he says. Look at his logic. I will never again curse the ground of man. Why? For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So God's logic is basically this. Look at all those people out there. They're so evil. I'll never again curse the ground because of that. What? What that tells me is that the way that God purposes to deal with us is dependent on God and not us. God looked looked at the people, the people who came out, remember, of the flood. The people who came through the flood. And he said, their hearts are evil. Now, yeah, Noah was a righteous man, upright in his generation. Yes, the sons came in, the wives came in, but they came back out of the ark. They're still people. The curse of sin still existed and God looked at it and he said, they're still sinful. But God purposed in his heart to deal with mankind in a certain way, regardless of what they were like and all because of what he is like. And that's grace. That's what grace is. That God would deal with us, not not according to our sins, but according to his righteousness. That's grace. It wasn't because Noah came out and said, well, you know what? I've learned our lesson. Humanity's learned our lesson. We're going to turn over a new leaf. Things are just going to get better and better from here. We're going to live our best life now. That's that's not what they did. That's not what they said. God looked at him and he said, you're sinful. You're still sinful. In fact, we know that things didn't get better and better. Within a generation, they were building towers up to heaven to say, hey, you know what? We can be like God. That's exactly what happened back in the garden. We can be like God. We can reach the heights of heaven and be, let's make a name for ourselves. God saw all of that. And he purposed in his heart to deal with us in a certain way. To not bring the judgment that we deserve, but instead to bring grace. God knows that humanity is desperately wicked. And that we need more than a fresh start, right? We don't need a revamped creation. We need to be new creations. That's what we need. And for that to happen, grace is required. Jesus himself references that. Rather than saying to us, listen guys, just do your best to love people, right? And, And treat people nice and the... And you know what? Things on earth will just get better and better. Jesus doesn't say that. So in Matthew 24, when he's forecasting to his disciples what the end of times are going to be like, this is how he said it. 
He says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, this is Jesus speaking, referencing the story that we've been looking at, as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Noah wasn't just a picture of salvation for his generation. Noah is a picture of salvation for ours. By God's grace, he has become a picture of what it looks like to have faith. That's why if you read through the great faith chapters of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11 and then into Hebrews chapter 12, Noah's listed there. Chapter 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed the ark for the savings of his household. And by this, he condemns the world and becomes an heir of the righteousness that comes through faith. Moses, Noah is a picture to us, an illustration to us about what faith looks like. We need a saviour. And the only way that could happen was for God to act in grace towards us. So that's finished. In summary, we underestimate the seriousness of sin. Not only the collective Sins of humanity, right? We, we underestimate that, I think. But more importantly, this morning, we underestimate our own sin. Rebellion against God can't be explained away. Can't be glossed over in our life. Can't be ignored by comparison. You know, well, my sin isn't as bad as their sin, so I'm pretty good. You can't do that. Sin always has consequences. Sin always destroys. Sin is always communal. It doesn't just affect me. My sin affects those around me. We underestimate the seriousness of sin. We underestimate the exclusivity of salvation. Jesus really is the only way this morning. Jesus really is the only truth that you will find. Jesus really is the only life that's on offer. There isn't another way. If you're trying to find a side gate into heaven, there isn't one. If you think that you can convince God of your worth, let me tell you, he'll only accept Christ's worth. That's it. Even your growth as a Christian is completely dependent on Jesus. The good news of grace, anything apart from that, anything else that you rest in, it will fail. It will let you down. And finally, we underestimate the expansiveness of grace. Maybe you look at your life and... Maybe this morning you're saying, well, Chris, all I see in my life is death and destruction. Sin has already caused havoc. Not only my sin, but more often the sins of other people. Maybe you feel as though the flood is rising. Maybe you feel that there is no room for you in the ark of God. Then please, I want you to hear this morning. You're underestimating God's grace. You're underestimating his willingness to forgive the repentant. You're underestimating the price that Jesus was willing to pay for you. 
you underestimate how far the shepherd will search for the one lost sheep. How thoroughly the widow searches and turns her house upside down looking for that lost coin. You underestimate how eagerly a father stands looking for their son on the horizon. All to find that which was lost. So if you have underestimated grace this morning, my my plead with you is see God this morning in Christ and realize that for all the mess, for all the destruction, for all the loss that you may feel in your life, His grace is sufficient. His love is enough. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Are you hungry this morning? Jesus says, come to me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me, I'll never thirst. I said to you that you've seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father. That everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So if you think this morning that you can stand there and bang on the door of the ark and say, I really want to come in. I'm banging on the door. I don't think I'm good enough. I want you to hear this morning that if God draws you near to him, he will open up that door and he will say, welcome. And if he welcomes you, you will never be cast out. We underestimate God's grace, but let's lean into it this morning. Let's be grateful that he has met us in our sin with a salvation that is sure in Christ, with a grace that is sufficient for all our failings. Let's pray. Father, meet us in our need, we pray. We thank you for the story of Noah, not just some sort of made-up illustration to scare people at night or something. Lord, our sin is serious before you. And right now there may be some whose sin has been undealt with. Lord, press on all our hearts the seriousness of sin. Help us to see that salvation is in no one else. That our sin can only be dealt with by Jesus at the cross. And so, Lord, if there are here some this morning who have never done that, Lord, I'm praying right now, will you open their eyes to see Jesus? Will you humble us all to bow before you, to be on our knees before the cross of Calvary, to lay our sin at your feet and say, God, you are sufficient for me. Help us to be those that would put our hand up and say, I am a sinner and I need a saviour. And Jesus and his grace is sufficient. It's enough. And then help us to rest and celebrate and enjoy the fact that those who you have brought to yourself, you'll never cast out. That we are secure and safe in your grace. 
that it is sufficient for us for eternity. We thank you for meeting us in your word this morning. Amen.